50 states. He was arrested in Maryland. The baby died in September 2019. At the time, Villa Lobos lived in Amherst with the baby's mother. And it's a celebration in Williamsburg this weekend as the town recognizes their 250th anniversary. Festivities kick off today with fireworks. There will also be food trucks, music, and face painting for the kids. Saturday features a dunk tank, music, and a square dance. The celebration will wrap up Sunday with a parade beginning at 930. This afternoon will be mostly sunny with temps in the low to mid-80s. Dry tonight, the weekend looks decent with sun on Saturday and a chance of a shower or storm on Sunday. Highs in the mid to upper 80s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Good afternoon, everybody. They say a day without a buzz is like a day that never was. But we're going to dispute that here. Uh, Buzz Eisenberg, our host of hostess, uh, is taking a much-needed vacation. He's traveling up and down the eastern seaboard, visiting friends and family. And he's left today, at least, to Dan and me. Dan, this <laughs> is a little it? scary. <laughs> but we will make it through. My name is Brian Adams. I'm your usual Thursday science and sustainability guy. And today, I'm the afternoon Buzz. And even though Buzz is gone, we are going to buzz through this first half hour, <laughs> pun intended, uh, welcoming Dan Conlon from Warm Colors Apiaries. Uh, Dan has been a beekeeper for 50 years, devoted the last 20 years to running his business in South Deerfield, Warm Colors Apiaries, and we're going to talk all things bees today. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. So let's begin by how did you get started with beekeeping? Uh, simply, I lived in Ohio at the time, and uh, when I was about 14, I would work for a farmer in the summers, and uh, he was a crop farmer, but he kept several dozen beehives, and I thought that they were amazing from the get-go, and no one else in his family had an interest, so he'd have me help him on Sunday afternoons, and he gave me my first two beehives, and a copy of the ABC XYZ of beekeeping, and that's how I got into bees. So I pretty much have have had bees wherever I moved to or whatever jobs I had uh, ever since. So. And how many colonies do you currently have at Warm Colors? We use we've our, our peak numbers are about a thousand for honey. Oh, production. hold on, wait a minute, a thousand for honey production, and oh about two hundred for queen uh, rearing, which is. Uh, a separate part of the business. So. A thousand colonies of bees. Yeah. And each colony has about how many bees? Uh, this time of year, probably forty to 50,000 workers. My goodness. So. so if someone do the math, a thousand <laughs> times forty to 50,000, that is a lot of bees. Yeah. Uh, Wait, it, I, I had a question. So you worked at the farm. Why did you get into bees out of all well, I, you know, I was doing that as a high school summer job, so I was uh, you just, never you just really fell in interested love. in the farming okay. part so much, but the bees were fascinating The bees to me. are yeah. fascinating. They, yeah, so. Anything special about the bees that fascinated you? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think that uh, as you study bees, you realize that the behaviors are heritable, for one, which I found interesting even as a, you know, a younger person, but now... We actually understand a lot of the genetics, and we understand the genes that actually uh, can pass behaviors forward to the next generation. And we actually have the technology now to predict what they're going to be like in the future. So we're, uh, uh, I think that has always been in the back of my mind. But bees generally, uh, once I started realizing the connection they had with the natural world, not just our agriculture, but just that... Uh, everything, everything humans need, bees are a part of at some level, and uh, and that's just carried along all these years. So let's talk about that connection to modern agriculture. Bees are so important as pollinators. Can they you are. T can you talk about the the services? Is that the right word that bees provide? Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know for your listeners who aren't familiar with the word pollination, it's simply moving the male. Uh, gametes from what we call the anther of flowers to the stigma, which is the female part of the flower, which allows the um, seeds to be formed and the plants to reproduce. So they are they are essentially the the carriers of, uh, or they complete the sexual 
connection between the male and female parts of the flower. So that's pollination. Uh, you know, people don't always realize that pollination is a separate activity from what we call fertilization, which is where you do get the seeds, the fruit, the vegetables. And pollination does not always guarantee fertilization. So what you need is a situation where you have lots of insects, in this case bees, is what we use, uh, visiting the same flowers over and over until they are fertilized uh, completely. So, um, And what are some of the crops in Western Mass in particular that depend on bees for pollination? Well, we typically, mid-May, we of course do orchards, and we do a lot of the local orchards uh, for apples, uh, peaches, uh, plums, pears, you know, spring, uh, what we call stone fruit, which are, your, of course, your, your, your peaches and, and things like that. Uh, but uh, we would do those in, in May, and that's about a seven to seven to ten day process. And right now we're putting bees out for uh, different types of squash, cucumbers, uh, melons, um, uh, things like that. Vine crops mainly are the main summer pollination here. And the valley produces... Uh, considerable amount of that kind of produce, so it's uh, it's a it's an important thing. When when you say you're you're doing them, are you moving hives? From yeah, your... we move hives physically to the location of certain fields. How do you ch- move a beehive? We would screen the front so they have air. We would try to do it when they're all in the hive, usually in the you know in the dark or early mor- morning before they become active, and you would just pick them up and move them with the truck or trailer. And then we would uh, put them on stands near the fields and uh, open them up, and they would quickly orient to the location they're at, and they would find the, uh, the flowers within uh, a few hours. They'd be pretty much pollinating. Uh, and the, the typical thing, cucumbers, for example, is a good example. Uh, cucumbers will, by having one beehive per acre, will increase the overall yield of that field by 40 to 60%. Wow. So that's a huge economic yes. issue for it's farmers that are far- right on the edge. Farmers, farmers consider this a necessity for some of these crops because it's so, it, it, it produces so much more. It's, it's worth it to them. The other thing that it does is you've probably seen a cucumber that looks kind of funny-shaped. That's, a, a, that's a, a piece of cucumber that was not fertilized completely. Or so it makes completely. it more uniform and more sellable. And, for, and tastes better, yeah. and the color is more uniform. Nobody wants a crooked cucumber. That's right. Yeah. So you want a well-developed, formed cucumber. And so that's cucumbers, but it's the same with a lot of the other, other fruit and vegetables. Some squashes, if you put in different varieties, side field by field, side by side, you'll get cross-pollination, and that will reduce the seeds in the squash. So there's certain matchups you do there. So... Our job uh, as, as uh, beekeepers and pollinators for the farmers is to, first of all, understand the crops are pollinating. And there's quite a bit of science behind this, so you can look, out, look these things up, know what kind of squash you're putting it on, what the requirements are. Some squash, they bloom one, one day, they don't get pollinated, they don't produce any fruit, so they, they close after one day. Wow, um, so it's all about timing, getting the highs and, in. And knowing the different... The different Crops. Not to get too, too, too into the details of that, but uh, you know, basically, the farmers really have to. The farmers and the beekeepers do have to sort of have an understanding as to what their, what their goal is with this with these crops. Mm-hmm. Pears, pears are a good example. Bees, honeybees are not particularly. Uh, uh, they don't particularly favor pear bloom. Uh, they you you'll see more flies on pear for pollination than you will, will uh, bees. And so to, to get pears pollinated, we wait till they're half open. The flowers on the trees are half open. We move the bees in at night, we open them up, and if it's a nice sunny 75 degree day, you'll get about one day of pollination and then the bees will find something they like better. Wow, that's so interesting. Apples, they'll be on them as long as there's a bloom. So Now the bees are visiting flowers to get two things, right? Pollen and nectar, and it's correct. the nectar that makes honey. That's correct. And how much honey can you can you get off a hive in a say a good year? A hundred pounds would be above average for the New England area. Wow! So a hundred pounds from a yeah. thousand hives—that's yeah. a lot of honey. 
It is. And you sell that out of your storefront? In well, we sell it to the universities. We sell it to store local stores. And about a third of our honey is direct sales to customers who we've really had for about 20 years that come to the house, get refills and uh, things like that. So when we see them, when we see the bees visiting flowers, they've got that proboscis, right? They're, they're yes. sipping the nectar. Yes. They're going to bring it back to the hive and not to be graphic, but vomit, throw it up, right? Well, that's probably not the right term for that, but uh, they do have a, what we call a honey stomach, which is kind of a big bladder, and they suck the nectar up in. And there's a lot of chemistry going on here. Most plant sugars are sucrose, and that's a complex sugar. And the bees actually convert that sugar to a glucose fructose, just like the human body. That's what they run on. The muscles and brain that we have run on those sugars, not sucrose. So we convert that. So when you eat honey, that's why a lot of athletes like to use honey for an energy spurt. The instant energy. Yeah, it goes right to your stomach, to your blood, and you can start burning it right away. So it's a, it's a sugar that we actually use in our bodies. Well, the bees have the same metabolism as far as what they burn. So they convert the sucrose into the simpler forms of sugar of glucose and, and fructose. Wow, wow, and that's what honey is. Yeah, but now, they add all these enzymes. They actually are one of the only creatures that makes a food, if you think about it, uh, that's not a part of their body. Wow. And, uh, and 100 pounds per, or 70 to 100 pounds. That's, that's uh, what high. we shoot for. And, uh -huh. and, and we've had years where we'll see, we'll see uh, you know, these, these are averages, because we will see spikes of 250 on some hives sometimes. Wow, So wow. we get a lot of honey. But they don't all produce that. So you might get 20 over here and 200 here. and so, Average being. So you're looking, still at, quite you're, you're looking at averages, you know, so. Uh, three different types of bees. Is type the right word? Drones, a queen, and workers. Yeah, different castes. Yeah, can you talk about that? Different individuals in the hive. There's the queen, of course, which everyone has heard about. She's the main uh, egg layer of the colony. And then the workers, which are your most abundant uh, individuals. There may be uh, 40 to 50,000 of those. And then the drones, which are the males that uh, are used for the fertilization of the queen, there may be 3,000 of those in a population. And that's in the summer. They shrink in the winter when they're less productive and they build up in the summer. So it's the female workers who are the ones that we see. That's right. The drones, the males don't do anything. They do one thing, and they do one thing alone, and they don't always get to do it. And so that one thing is? Mate. Is mate with the queen. Yes. But a queen mates once for life, is that right? She would take a mating flight probably once, but she would mate with as many as three dozen different drones wow. That wow. on that mating flight, which is the whole thing we strive for as beekeepers. We know this. If you have different genetic drones mating with the same queen, that means you have sister groups that all have a different skill set based on the father's abilities. And they have this in common, they have the mother. So these sister sets, you might have some that are really excellent at wax building, some are excellent at nursing the young, some are excellent at disease control, some are good at foraging, and the healthiest colonies have this diverse range of genetics represented by the fathers. Amazing. We're going to take a break. Uh, my name is Brian Adams. I'm filling in for Buzz Eisenberg on the Afternoon Buzz. We're speaking with Dan Conlon from Warm Colors Apiaries in South Deerfield about all things buzz-related, bee-related, and we will be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. In the bills just passed by the Massachusetts House and Senate, 
What are the protections for abortion providers and patients from Massachusetts and from out of state? Join us when we speak with State Senator Joe Comerford, who will be our guest Monday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. This week's Shop Tuesday is Slancha. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Slancha releases gift certificates for their Holyoke restaurant. Eat and drink on Slancha's patio, high up on Jarvis Avenue, with a view of Holyoke and beyond. Good food and drink, lunch and dinner daily. They say it on the old sod, and they say it in Holyoke. Slancha, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic the best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talon Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 Welcome back. Uh, Buzz is on vacation. Your host this afternoon is Brian Adams. That's me. And we're talking with Dan Conlon from Warm Colors Apiaries in South Deerfield about all things bee-related. And boy, you can't go outside. Well, in my garden, it's just full of bees now. The weather has been really nice. The clover is in full bloom. My squash are blooming. My cucumbers are blooming. So nice to see those bees hard at work. Dan, you've done some amazing work in breeding queens, and you have 200 hives of your, and then a 1,000 other hives, but 200 devoted exclusively to queen breeding. Can you talk about what's involved with that? Well, we uh, were members of the, I was president up until last year of the uh, Russian Honey Bee Breeders Association, and um, that was a... Uh, the line of bees that was discovered to live where mites, varroa mites, had been for 120 years. And uh, they had gone through all this natural selection, so they actually had defended, developed defenses against mites. So the uh, Thomas Rinderer, who was the director of the USDA bee lab in Baton Rouge, uh, got those into this country, and we tested them, or they tested them, and they, then they asked us to form a private organization that would hold the genetics for the future, and we would be responsible for that. So to let's, make a long let's, story let's short... Ba- let's backtrack for a moment. Yeah. What is a mite, and why do okay. bees worry about it? Probably the number one problem in the world for uh, honeybees is something called the varroa mite. And it kind of looks a little like a tick, and it actually does a lot of the same kind of things ticks do, which is that it harbors a lot of diseases, viruses, and it feeds on the blood of the bee. And uh, so it gives, it spreads diseases within the hive, so it makes hives sick. And they, can, and they also can multiply to a level where they would literally uh, destroy the hive. And uh, so this has been something we've been trying to trying to contain and control since the 1990s, and we're better at it than we used to. But initially, those mites were so were brand new to our bees. The European honeybees had never seen these mites in nature before, and when they first first came into this country, they they literally destroyed 100 percent of the beehives. Oh my goodness! We could not keep bees alive in those days. And so that it led to certain chemical treatments, which became the new way to control mites in a hive. And some of us, <clears throat> Tom Rinderer, who was doing a lot of research on this, he was one of the few researchers who, who redirected the research lab to looking into natural defenses that bees had 
that could counter the mites. And his thing was chemicals will not do this for us. The genetics will do it for us. And there's something with this, these Russian queens. These Russian queens have de 10 heritable traits that we can amplify through selection, meaning we pick the best of them and breed those for the next generation. And we have been, been over the last, since 2007, we've seen a steady improvement in our, our bees' ability to counter these mites without any kind of intervention. And that means chemical intervention. Chemical intervention, yes, intervention. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so we are seeing a steady improvement in our, uh, our bees' ability to counter mites and other diseases, by the way. So they have shown themselves to be, uh, as Tom Rinderer said, these bees have the broadest genetics of any honeybee in the country because we haven't had them long enough to mess them up. Ah, uh, that's it. Or so how do it, you breed it out of them? In other words, so, how do you go about breeding a <clears throat> queen? Well, there's techniques which have been known for quite a long time, where we can actually artificially uh, stimulate a beehive to raise more queens, and then we use those queen. They will draw special queen cells that they will add hormones to, and they will cause that egg to, that egg to hatch to a larva which is fed a special diet that you've heard of royal jelly. Uh, that's a special diet of hormones and enzymes, which will cause that otherwise egg that's going to become a worker to actually go through this uh, sexual differentiation where it will cause the RNA of the brain of that larva to reformat its, its development into a queen. That's so cool that any... And the bees can do that with any fertilized egg. Any fertilized egg that would normally be a worker, fed the right stuff, becomes a queen. Yes. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. Dan, if folks want to get in touch with you for a beekeeping class or to interest in beekeeping, uh, how do they go about doing that? Well, they should probably start by going to our website and looking at it. It's, it's warmcolorsapiary.com. And there's a lot of information there, both on our Russian efforts and uh, we put up uh, the schedule of when we're doing things. The best time if you're looking to start bees is in the spring. And even if you weren't to take a course with us, you should find uh, a course through one of the bee clubs or some other, some other source. Because beekeeping does, re it, it does require a certain learning curve that's a little steeper than it used to be. You should come into bees knowing exactly what you're getting into. Uh, there are problems such as the mites that you sort of have to understand and you have to know when to intervene. It's not as simple as it was when I started. So. I don't, I'm not sure it's ever been simple, yeah. um, but it's a great way to combine a love of natural history it is. It is. with a sweet tooth, yeah. uh, with doing good work for, uh, yeah. for the world and for pollinators. So again, Dan Conlon, thank you so much. Well, thanks for, for joining me, us. Brian. I, uh, we, I haven't gotten to about half my questions. I'm sure <laughs> lots to ask, but um, we'll have to have you back sometime. We've been talking with Dan Conlon. He's uh, been a beekeeper for 50 years, the owner of Warm Colors Apiaries, and encourages you to visit him and his hives down in South Deerfield and get on the website to find out how to get there. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. And we'll be back after these words. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One person is under arrest following a shooting in Greenfield yesterday. Officers were called to Energy Park at 50 Mile Street for a report of a shooting around 4 p.m. An early investigation determined four people were walking together when one person pulled out a firearm and shot in the direction of a group of people on stage. One person suffered minor injuries. Police have also identified the other three people that may have been involved. The Northampton School Committee plans to create an ad hoc committee to assist in the search for a new superintendent. The committee met last night. Bringing on a national firm allows us to bring that emphasis on equity and inclusion. Firms that specialize in doing that and in sourcing diverse candidates as well. Members say they are looking at three national firms to assist in the search.
A man accused of killing an infant with a lethal dose of adult sleep medication was arraigned today in Hampshire Superior Court. After a three-year investigation into the death of his infant son, Isaac Villalobos was indicted by a Hampshire County grand jury last week. A warrant for his arrest was issued in all 50 states. He was arrested in Maryland. The baby died in September 2019. At the time, Villalobos lived in Amherst with the baby's mother. And it's a celebration in Williamsburg this weekend as the town recognizes their 250th anniversary. Festivities kick off today with fireworks. There will also be food trucks, music, and face painting for the kids. Saturday features a dunk tank, music, and a square dance. The celebration will wrap up Sunday with a parade beginning at 930. This afternoon will be mostly sunny with temps in the low to mid-80s. Dry tonight, the weekend looks decent with sun on Saturday and a chance of a shower or storm on Sunday. Highs in the mid to upper 80s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the country. The hill towns and valleys that we call home here in Western Massachusetts. At the Franklin Land Trust, we're working with landowners and community members to protect the landscapes that give us productive farmland, clean water, and healthy woodlands. We don't have to travel too far these days to see places where those sorts of things are just a memory. Our staff and volunteers have helped us to protect more than 32,000 acres so far here in our region. And we hope that you'll consider supporting our efforts to take care of the land that we all love. The farms that give us fresh local food, the riverways that give us clean water, and the forests and wildlife habitats that provide us all with healthy air. For more information on our work of landscape conservation, please visit our website at franklinlandtrust.org. That's franklinlandtrust.org. And thank you for your consideration. Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying for federal food assistance. They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Welcome back. We are the Afternoon Buzz, and we are Buzzless. Uh, buzz is on vacation, and my name is Brian Adams. I'm filling in for Buzz. Uh, this uh, first half hour, we talked about bees. This second half hour, we're going to talk about food and food insecurity, and we're welcoming to the studio Heidi Norden-Smith. She is executive director of the Survival Center. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. Let me begin with, I don't know if it's a question, Heidi, or comment, probably more like a rant. <laughs> uh, it just seems to me something is seriously wrong in our society when so many adults and children struggle to put food on the table in any given day. With all the resources that we have, why is it that food insecurity is, is such an issue? Why is it that so few people make such incredible amounts of money and so many people have to rely on wonderful organizations like the Survival Center, again, to put, put food on, on the table? We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and we have 10%, I read, of Hampshire County you can, or Western Mass, you can correct me, are, are food insecure. We spend over $800 billion a year. That's billion dollars a year 
on our military and our neighbors go hungry. So to answer all of these questions immediately, <laughs> Heidi, thank you for joining us. I'm laughing. We're both laughing anxiously. I, I don't expect you to answer any of those, but I think Heidi and I agree that, the, that this is an issue. Um, can you begin by telling us about the Survival Center? What is it? Who are your clients? And what do you do? Sure. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I won't try to answer those big questions you pose, but they're all in there. Um, the Northampton Survival Center has been in operation since 1979. Um, I've been there since 2004. And we are a food pantry that serves 18 communities in Hampshire County. So about half of our clients come from Northampton and another quarter or so from East Hampton, and then throughout the Hill Towns and other, um, most of the other towns in Hampshire County. And we provide food to folks who are struggling to make ends meet, um, food and a lot of other resources as well. Um, I'm sure you'll ask me some questions about the pandemic, things that look very different at the Survival Center during the pandemic, um, but there's lots of good information, good news to tell. Um, and one thing that's really central to what we do is community involvement. Before the pandemic, we had 371 volunteers in the year before the pandemic started. And those are just ordinary folks like yourself. I'm not going to call you ordinary, Brian, but um, folks who serve on our board, folks who volunteer in the pantry, folks who pick up um, day-old breads around town or take uh, recycling cardboard to the... Uh, to the dump for us, um, all sorts of ways that people just want to roll up their sleeves and help their neighbors. So let's talk a bit about uh, COVID and the pandemic. Um, people had been coming to the center for years, and all of a sudden this horrendous uh, epidemic stripes. How, how did you uh, pivot yeah. with, with COVID, with such fear? And you rely extensively on volunteers. Did they all drop out? Mm. Um, uh, what what happened to your ability to distribute food to food insecure people? Yeah, it was a lot. Even just raising that question brings me back, as it does for all of us, to those early days in March and April of 2020 and just like all the things that needed to change. Um, you're right that vol our volunteer corps was uh, really decimated at that moment. Uh, lots of folks just not feeling comfortable coming into the building, and we needed to change up our operations really quickly. Um in early April of 2020, we kind of changed our operations and created a community food distribution project, which we partnered with uh, Grow Food Northampton and also Community Action of Pioneer Valley. And we moved our, our uh, food pantry operations off-site to Jackson Street School, the elementary school nearby, and ran a food pantry out of Jackson Street School for 18 weeks of the summer. And you did this almost immediately, right within... Within Two one weeks? one week, one yeah. week. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Felt like the longest week of my life, to be honest. Oh. But um, really, looking back, it was a very quick pivot, as you say, and uh, it worked remarkably well. The school obviously was not able to be in session, and their um, really large, accommodating driveway and parking lot, their big indoor space, cafeteria, etc., accommodated us and the volunteers who were willing and able to come to us. Uh, to do things safely and to get a lot of food out in those early months. And you are back at the center now. We are. But the clients are not coming into the center. Can you talk about how you're distributing food in this sort of new mode or yeah. of, of doing business? Yeah, I'm really happy to talk about it because it's um, there's so much information to it that it's hard to get the information out. We have developed four different modes of distribution that are still in effect here during the pandemic um, and which may very well stay with us for the duration beyond all recovery. One uh, cornerstone is our drive-through program. So instead of clients coming into the building, folks drive up or walk up um, and are served outside the building by uh, talking with volunteers indoors. Volunteers have a headset on. Um, the volunteers walk through the pantry and work with clients to make individualized selections so that every grocery item is chosen by the client. They're just not doing it right there looking at the item. Um, they still have that warm and friendly relationship with the volunteer building up over that uh, time of service. Uh, and then the volunteer brings the food out to people's cars. So it's safe, it's distant, but it's still, the cornerstone is still client choice, dignity. Um, and I'm happy to say we're really able to preserve that relationship. Um, it sounds a little 
It sounds a little distant. It sounds a little bit um, like you might imagine just like a drive-through at a McDonald's or something. But inst- relationship between volunteer between and the, client. Exactly. Yes. Um, but instead, there's a lot of warmth. There's a lot of getting to know each other over the phone, and then at that last moment when the when the food comes out to their car. Um, so we're still getting uh, preserving that relationship. What about folks that? don't have cars or are disabled or older and just can't get out? Is there a a way for them to receive services? Yes. So two different modes of distribution that we're very excited about. One, through our partnership with Grow Food Northampton, where we've been, we and Grow Food have been bringing shelf-stable items and produce to people at their homes um, at the various housing sites. So uh, Meadowbrook, Hampshire Heights, et cetera, um, folks are getting deliveries every week of the items that they're um, interested in, in having. Um, Grow Food has also done some outdoor marketing of fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, so that's been a great way to bring food right to people that need it and who can't come to us for whatever reason. Similarly, we have an individual home delivery program outside of those housing sites for folks who are homebound, who have transportation issues, who have um, elder care or child care or for any other reason, uh, sometimes uh, quarantining situation uh, where folks have needed f- food delivered to their homes and we've been able to accommodate that as well. And then the last mode that we're really excited about um, is our n- newish curbside program. So we developed an online store and clients who want to can... Store uh, is in free store. Free store, yeah, that's right. Thank you for everything I'm going to talk about is free. I should say that over and over again. Um Folks can go online and see pictures and descriptions of every product that's available to them. They do an online ordering system. There's points. It's very um, easy to navigate. And then they set up, they uh, reserve a curbside appointment, kind of like, I haven't ever done this, but I think it's like Peapod or some of those other grocery programs where you can uh, arrange to uh, pick up your your groceries during a certain slot of time. So uh, a client will choose the groceries they want. They'll come during that little window of time, drive up, and the groceries are brought out to them. Again, it's preserving their choice, exactly what they want. Um, It really makes it easy for some folks who don't have the time to to wait in that line to do the drive-through program. Uh, We had one mom who said, I can't get to the center. I can send my teenage son, but I don't want him choosing what the family's going to get for groceries. So Chips and uh, chips. Could be, yeah. So... um, she, you know, did the online ordering herself and then sent the son over. He was happy to drive over and pick wow. it up. When you're talking about clients, uh, how many clients visit the Survival Center on a weekly, monthly mm. basis? Um, annually, we're serving about 4,300 clients at the center. Um, and in, a, in a year? In a year, yep. Mm-hmm. And so depending on the day, it depends on the mode. could be hundreds of food deliveries in a day. It could be 50 or 60 Households driving up for drive for the drive-through uh, could be another twenty or thirty coming during curbside hours. It so it depends on the mode and the day. We are talking with Heidi Norton Smith. Heidi is the executive director of the Northampton Survival Center, the food pantry in Northampton that serves whole lot whole lot of towns from East Hampton to South Hadley to all sorts of the hill towns, and a uh, also a food they administer the food pantry in Goshen, which is a one afternoon a week That's right. uh, pantry as well. Um, in case you're wondering, Buzz is on vacation. My name is Brian Adams, and we will be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Forget your sorrows and dance. 
Forget your sickness and then... When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What's for dinner tonight? What's on your plate is a conversation with the land, with the farmers. Local farm fresh food is all around. Get it direct from farms and farm stands, at farmers markets, at grocery stores, in local restaurants. Just look for CESA's bright yellow Local Hero label, letting you know that this is food from local farms grown with care by friends and neighbors. Local Hero Food, as fresh as it gets. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is from High Coast. It's called Have, H-A-V, which means sea, like the ocean. Where's High Coast? Sweden. What? This is a Swedish whiskey. Have. And this one was in uh, the top whiskeys of the year list. It was number six. Wow. You're right? Swedish whiskey. I mean, I know they have really good food there because of the Swedish chef. Yeah. Naturally. Bork, bork. You have to assemble this whiskey all by yourself without any instructions. That's the <laughs> thing about it. They trap you in this big box and then they give you like just diagrams of what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, just pictures of grains. It's whiskey from Sweden, from High Coast. And how much is this one? You can have this one for $57.99. You know. I like what you there see and that's a good price too find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at state street verizon has introduced a new ultra low-cost plan called welcome unlimited which is priced at thirty dollars per line per month for four lines the plan comes with unlimited talk text and data company said it's directed at Americans who are feeling the crunch of inflation nearly everywhere they turn. Coffee retailer Starbucks, which is countering a growing unionization movement among its baristas, is now grappling with another problem, crime. This week, company officials announced they are closing 16 U.S. stores out of concern for the safety of its employees. You can add the cost of homeowners insurance to the list of life's necessities that keep getting more expensive. A new report from Policy Genius shows the cost of a home insurance policy outpaced inflation from May 2021 to May of this year, increasing by 12.1%. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at consumeraffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. It's actually the Afternoon Buzz with Brian Adams today, and my guest is Heidi Norton-Smith. Heidi is the Executive Director at the Northampton Survival Center, the food, uh, the, the center that serves so many people such good food and really deals with this huge issue of food insecurity. Heidi, I wanted to start with um, what I imagine for many people it's not easy to queue up in line at the survival center. You have to, I mean, I think it might be really hard to admit that you need help, mm -hmm. you need these services, you're in line with other people. Um, there might be feelings, all sorts of different feelings that, that people have. Um, how do you and your staff and the volunteers deal with clients' feelings about this mm -hmm. and sort of destigmatize, is that the right word? Yeah. Uh, their need to come to the center and seek out food yep. services? That's such a great question. I appreciate it. Our mission includes serving people with dignity and respect, and we absolutely want to maintain a warm and welcoming atmosphere. It is harder to do when we're a little bit less in person than we were inside the building. So we have instead volunteers outside who are extraordinarily welcoming and warm and are there to make sure that each person who comes into the driveway feels seen and acknowledged and oriented to the whole process to make it smooth for them. Um, but it is, it's hard to ask for help. And um, one of the questions that we get a lot from folks is, you know, when can we come back in the building? And 
one thing I didn't mention it before the break is what a much what a um, increased volume of service we are doing at the center since before the pandemic. We've had about a seventy four percent increase in food distributions. Well, hold on, seventy four percent. Seventy four percent since two and a half years ago. Yes. So what that looks like is like before the pandemic, we might have given out. Uh, food in 32,000 distributions over the course of a year. Now it's maybe more like 55,000 distributions over the course of the year through those various modes that I described. Um, What that means for the inside of the building is we are literally floor to ceiling with food and people and carts and cardboard boxes and all of the things that are needed to make the distributions happen. People as in staff and volunteers, not clients. Exactly. Room to have the clients come in. Is no that... room. The the place where we used to have a waiting area, a very nice, welcoming waiting area, is full of pallets filled with food and toiletries and all the things that are ready to go out. So just having enough room for the volunteers to move around and get things ready uh, means that we're not in any short order imagining that people that clients will be able to come back in and make a selection. It's a space space issue. It's not. Um, in any way, our our lack of attention to that being a nice thing for clients, we would love to be able to welcome folks back in the building. Um, and what we're hoping for is something to shift for us over the course of the next couple of years where we might be able to move some of our uh, food storage a little bit out of that food warehouse, uh, out of the waiting area into a food warehouse so that we can um, maintain that pantry and indoors again and bring clients back into the building exactly at least in part we we think now that delivery is a cornerstone for a lot of folks and we we don't see ourselves giving up that program Um, curbside has been exceptionally popular and we we imagine we'll build upon that but um, and and we think drive-through will be the right thing for some clients but we'd like to add in-person indoors over time when we can so it's been two years and a few months with Mm -hmm. with covid um, seeing an extraordinary rise in food insecurity. You said 74% more distributions, a lot more clients coming in. What is the mood at the mm. center hmm. now? How are staff and volunteers feeling? Are you hanging by a thread? Mm. Are you innov- <laughs> It sounds like you've done tremendous innovation. Yeah, I'm so glad for that question. The mood is great at the center, and we are not hanging on by a thread. We are innovating. We are celebrating. Um, one example... We just launched a program a few months ago called Pantry Fresh. We just did a newsletter about it that uh, folks might have in their mailboxes. Um, And I think this is really an extraordinary thing. Our clients have loved it. It is based on the concept of like Blue Apron or uh, HelloFresh, where folks get home delivery of meal kits, all the ingredients and a simple recipe to follow, and learning some uh, cooking tips for their home. Our clients wanted to be a part of that cultural movement as well, that that trend, uh, but it's exorbitantly expensive and really outside of the reach of many. So we said, well, why don't we put together our own program? We call it Pantry Fresh, and it is a monthly meal kit that supplies all the ingredients, the recipe, cooking tips for like, you know, maybe how to zest a lemon for this particular recipe. Um and really puts within reach the cooking for this new meal that lots of clients are saying, you know, I've now integrated that into our weekly rotation. This is a family favorite. And you, this was an idea that originated with clients. Is that is that correct? That's right. It came out of our client advisory committee. Um, it was uh, bandied about there a bit, and staff took it over and uh, really experimented with it. And we've created, we've made it our own. It's wildly successful. That is it, so cool. It's Dan. I have a quick question. How much of the donations come from local farms and other local sources? We partner with probably some 15 or 20 different local farms. So lots and lots of fresh produce coming in locally. Um, I wouldn't be able to give you a percentage of the, because yeah. the amount of produce we give out is extraordinary. But um, it is a very embedded um, and, and well-loved uh, partnership between farms, farmers, and growers. Even folks who are growing, you know, too many zucchinis in their backyard, and they think <laughs> of us as they um, look over their bounty and they bring us a few extra. It's wonderful. It's great. And not just farmers are contributing, but other places as well. Correct? Bakeries and stores. Absolutely, bakeries, stores, local businesses support us financially or with, uh, you know, s- sending over um, excess resources from their own businesses. Um, it is really a, a, a very well-loved community endeavor 
the survival center. It's not uh, we're not off on our own, kind of making things work. We we run because of the love that pours to us from the community. And part of that love that pours is in the nature of donations. Mm -hmm. It costs a lot of money to feed so many people in as productive uh, and just way that you do. For folks who are interested in donating money, how how do they do that? Well, they uh, thanks for asking that, Brian. <laughs> they go to our website, NorthamptonSurvival.org. Um, we make it very easy to donate a one-time gift online or to send us a check or to sign up for our Bread and Butter Club where folks sign up to give monthly or give weekly or uh, on a regular basis to us so that we really have a stability of, of uh, donations coming in. Um, there are lots of ways to get involved, and those donations do go far. You're right. Um, we have a food budget of about $275,000 a year. And that's not going down, given it's inflation. It's not going down. The value of the food that we get for 275000 is over $1.5 million. And wow. that, that's food that's going into our community, into the hands of people who really need it. Now, not only is there an opportunity for folks who are supportive, as so many people are, the Survival Center, to donate, but also to volunteer. Mm -hmm. There are, you talked about hundreds of volunteers. My wife does the 10 to 12 shift <laughs> on Monday. I am fortunate to have been asked to be on the board of directors, so I suppose I've been full disclosure at the start of this interview. <laughs> um, I have to say, uh, what did want to, to, to make that known. People who want to volunteer, how can they, how can they do that? And what, what jobs are available for people? So many different jobs. Um, the vehicle to get into volunteering is going to be the same as the donations, NorthamptonSurvival.org. And there is another button just next to the donate, donation button uh, for getting involved. And the, the kinds of jobs can include a weekly shift, as you mentioned, your wife, um, a regular two-hour shift doing something like working directly with clients, making those food choices. It could be uh, uh, doing quality control of donated items to make sure they're still within expiration safety dates. Uh, it could be restocking shelves or taking cardboard to the dump. Uh, it can be just as a substitute coming in and helping us um, stuff envelopes or, uh, you know, do run errands for us or pick up food at a, at a local grocery store. Heidi, we are just about out of time. We have less than a minute. If you could have one wish for the Survival Center that would come true very quickly, what would it be? Oh, it would be um, the partnership between the city and us and somebody who's aware of a building that could be made available to do some shifting of people and resources so that we could occupy more space at our Prospect Street location and serve people more directly from that location. So getting food into another spot so clients can come back in. Or helping the city find a way to locate their staff um, that share space with us so that we can move food into the back area of our building. We've been talking with Heidi Norton-Smith, Executive Director of the Northampton Survival Center. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And Dan, take us away. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult hoping to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam. The Literacy Project offers free classes at five locations in Franklin and Hampshire counties. We also offer classes to help you prepare for college and to help you plan for a career. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. To find out about Literacy Project classes in Northampton, call 413-584-6755. To find out about our classes in Greenfield, Orange, Amherst, and Ware, Check us out online at literacyproject.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you want support furthering your education and accomplishing career goals. If you want to learn. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 5.